London, New York, Barcelona. Today from Ireland, you can fly to almost any place. But what if you could fly to any time? If you could experience events that change the world, if you could meet the people who lived through history, would you do it? Welcome to a new series of Time Travels, the programme where we explore the past. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. It could be a bumpy journey. OK, we made it. We're in Ireland and the year is 1662, a time when many discoveries in medicine had yet to be made. Oh, hello. Oh, you must excuse the state of me. I'm washing some of the clothes here. Now, you might think that's a bit of a chore, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather be sitting down with your feet up enjoying the bird song? Well, I can tell you that I've never been happier in my life than to be here washing clothes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I must sound like I've lost my reason. The thing is, you wouldn't think it looking at me now, but this time last week I could barely move, so I'm just thrilled that I'm fit and able to be getting on with the chores. You see, I've had problems with my back for nearly 15 years. Pulling up potatoes, <laughs> that's what did it. I leaned over and I must have twisted in a funny way. I got a terrible shooting pain and from that day I was crippled. I really was. And to what do I owe my miraculous recovery, you're wondering? Well, sit down there now, make yourself comfortable and I'll tell you all about it. It was last month, I think, that Neve came over to visit. She's been terribly good to me over the years, helping me out with the house and making sure that my husband and I are OK. We don't have any children, you see. And Tom, that's my husband. Well, he does his best, but sure, you know what men are like. Useless when it comes to the practical things, like putting stuff away, getting the water, finding his own shoes. He's always in a bad mood. Since that day with the potatoes, I don't think he's even smiled at all. So, Neve, bless her heart, has been coming over to help since the old back gave up on me. She's a good girl. Anyway, last month she came over all excited, so she was. Something about a Mr Valentine Grey Trakes. Have you heard of him? No, I hadn't either. Well, she's all in a tizzy and she says, Mary, wait till I tell you. You know young William Marr, the one with the terrible affliction? And says I, yes, of course I know him. He has that awful swelling of his neck and head and they don't think he'll recover, poor lad. And she says, no, Mary, he has recovered. I saw him just now with me own eyes, fit as a fiddle. His father brought him to see that gentleman Valentine Grey Trakes of Blackwater last week and he performed a cure. A cure, says I. Is he a physician? No, says she. He's a godly man and he performed a miracle cure. Well, says I, I'm in the market for one of those myself. Now, my husband Tom wasn't too sure about it at all. You know, there are a lot of people around who say they'll cure you, but instead they rob you blind. You give them all your money for some miraculous concoction of nettles and muck, and after all that, you're no better off than you were before. My Tom is not one to fall for such things. But I said to him, Tom, I'm desperate. I can barely walk from here to the door, and I'll try anything. 
So of course he gave way. And the very next day we were on our way to Blackwater to see this famous Mr. Valentine Greatrakes. Neve came along too for the pure excitement of it. Now, Mr. Valentine Greatrakes, he's a retired army officer and he lives on a fine farm near Blackwater. We went up to the place and sure, we weren't the only ones there because people had heard, you know, about young William Marr. So there were people there with all kinds of things wrong with them. Lord, the state of some of the poor craters waiting to see him. I was very nervous myself, it must be said. But when I finally got in there, he put me at ease. He was kind and gentle and he didn't do much, but put his hands over my back and said some prayers. Now, it may sound strange, but I honestly felt the cure almost immediately. As God is my witness, the tightness in my back seemed to just melt away, as though he had lifted the pain from my body. Afterwards, I fell to my knees to thank him, but he wouldn't accept any money or payment at all. He said it was God's will. And you see me now. I'm better still than I was that day. I have been up and about and doing all the things that need to be done without so much as a twinge. And Tom, my husband, has not stopped smiling. Now, if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. I think we should find out a bit more about the history of medicine. Ask an expert. I'm Harriet Wheelock, I'm Keeper of Collections in the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, so I look after everything old in the college, from books to old medical instruments. The Royal College of Physicians is a training body, so uh, we train doctors. Um, a physician is a kind of doctor. Um, there's two kinds, there's physicians and surgeons. Uh, the physicians tend to do the diagnosing, so they will have a look at you, examine you, tell you what they think is wrong. The surgeons do the operating, so they would operate if, if the physician says, well, we think there's something wrong here, the surgeon would then do the operation to cure that. So the surgeons do the cutting up and the physicians do the diagnosing. So when you've, you do your medical degree, so maybe through Trinity or UCD or one of the other universities, then you do your specialist training as a doctor and we look after that specialist training. So we have about 2,000 trainees over, it's between three and seven years they'll be training with us and they're the junior doctors in the hospital. So if you go to a hospital and meet a younger doctor, they're probably doing their training through the college. Before we had doctors and hospitals, what happened to sick people? That's a really good question. Um, so before we had doctors and hospitals as we recognise them today, most people would have been treated in their homes by their families. Um, sometimes people would have called in the help of a wise woman or a faith healer who would have perhaps come in with a special medicine or potion or cast a spell to try and make them the patient better. Um, many families would have had recipe books that they collected medicine recipes in, so special cures for common diseases. Um, and there was also a strong belief in faith healing in Ireland, so there's lots of holy wells and special sites that people would go to for cures for certain diseases. When were hospitals invented? 
So hospitals date from medieval times. Uh, the earliest hospitals tended to be set up by the church, so they were attached to monasteries or nunneries, and they quite often looked after patients with one specific disease rather than everyone. Um, the earliest hospital in Dublin is from about 1220, and it was specifically to treat lepers. And there was also a general hospital, which was founded a couple of decades later. Hospitals, as we would recognise them today, start in the 18th and 19th century. Um, Dublin's Rotunda Hospital is one of the oldest hospitals in Dublin. It was founded in 1745, and it's the oldest continuously operating midwifery hospital in Europe. What were the weirdest cures that were used in the old days? Okay, this one is a really tricky question. So there's lots of really, really strange cures for illnesses. Um, or ones that seem really strange to us today, but probably made a lot of sense to people at the time. So even for very common illnesses could have really complex cures. So for example, if you had a sore throat, it could be cured using St. Bridget's cotton. St. Bridget's cotton, to get a piece of St. Bridget's cotton, you left a piece of cotton on your doorstep on the night before the 1st of February, and St. Bridget would come along and bless it that night, and then you could use it for sore throats, so you just tied it round the patient's neck, and it would make their throat better. Um, if you didn't have a piece of St. Bridget's cotton to hand, you could also use a piece of silk, which had been wrapped around a butterfly or around a caterpillar. In both cases, you tied the material around the neck, and this was supposed to make the sore throat go away. Well, this one seems a bit crazy. There are some traditional medical cures which actually probably did work. So, for example, foxglove. The leaves of the foxglove were eaten to treat heart conditions, and foxglove's leaves contain digitalis, which is now used in heart medicine, so it probably did have some effect. Bridget's cotton, maybe less so. So foxglove is a common plant, grows in most woodlands. Foxglove is also quite poisonous, so don't try treating anything with it. <laughs> what is the greatest invention in medicine? There have been lots of really, really important inventions in medicine. Um, it's really hard to pick just one, and it doesn't even have to be something very big to have a huge effect. So, for example, access to clean water is probably one of the most important things for improving health um, worldwide, and it's a very, very simple thing. Um, one inve invention that has saved countless lives is vaccination. So um, vaccination is when you get a small injection from your doctor or nurse, and they inject you with a very, very low dose, normally a very, very low dose of the of the disease so that you build up the reaction to protect yourself against it. Um, it's really, really important vaccination because it prevents you getting a disease before, you know, before the disease is even a problem, you can stop people getting it. So vaccination dates from 1796 when Edward Jenner, who was a doctor in the UK, um, vaccinated a small boy against smallpox. Smallpox at that time was widespread and a really fatal disease. And because of Jenner's invention, by, seven, by 1979, smallpox had been eradicated worldwide, so it just doesn't exist as a disease anymore. Um, there's lots of important vaccinations, some of which you've probably had, for diseases like mumps, polio and TB. Um, again, these were all very widespread in Ireland 100 years ago and have now been largely eradicated. And new vaccines are being developed all the time, like the HPV vaccine. So it's really important that you go and get your vaccines as they really can save lives. When were women allowed to become doctors? So women have traditionally been involved in caring for the sick, um, particularly in the home. They were often consulted as wise women, um, were called in for births and would have been involved in nursing. Um, and in fact, as early as 1697, the College of Physicians where I work licensed a Mrs McCormack to become a midwife. 
However, as the medical profession became more um, scientific and more regularised in the 18th and 19th century, women were excluded from medicine and they couldn't practice as doctors. In 1867, the government passed a new law that allowed medical colleges to choose if they would like to allow women to sit their exams. Um, my college, the College of Physicians, was the first place to do this, and in January 1877, Eliza Dunbar sat and passed our examinations, and she became the first woman to be able to practice as a doctor under this new law. Today, medicine is increasingly a female profession, so our current trainees, over 60% of them, are females. There have been many important medical discoveries that have saved lives and changed the way that we treat illnesses. One such discovery was made purely by chance. This is the story of penicillin. Alexander Fleming was born on a farm in Scotland in the year 1881. His upbringing made him very curious about the natural world and he worked hard to become a scientist. During the First World War, Alexander Fleming served as a captain in the Royal Medical Corps and he saw many soldiers die when a wound became infected. He was very keen to find a way to stop this from happening and so he set about learning how different bacteria could fight infections in the body. He did many experiments involving bacteria, hoping that he might have a breakthrough. And this breakthrough was about to come. One day, when Alexander Fleming came home from a holiday, he discovered that one of the small glass plates that he had covered in harmful bacteria for an experiment had a ring of green mould on it. This green mould had contaminated the experiment by accident. When Alexander Fleming examined the glass dish, he saw that none of the harmful bacteria was growing around the mould. The mould was somehow killing the bacteria. Alexander Fleming decided to do some more experiments to see how many different types of bacteria the mould could kill. And as it turned out, this mould juice, as he called it, was very powerful. At first, he tested his new discovery on animals, and when they were cured, he knew he had found a new way of fighting bacteria. Alexander Fleming named the mould penicillin, and later, two other scientists named Howard Florey and Ernst Chain developed the substance into a medicine. After a lot of research and experimentation, by the year 1942, penicillin was widely produced and used to help soldiers on the battlefields of the Second World War. Alexander Fleming continued his research and wrote many medical papers about antibiotics and the immune system. In 1945, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine, along with Howard Florey and Ernst Chain, for their work in developing penicillin. Alexander Fleming died in London in the year 1955 and he is remembered for his enormous contribution to science and medicine. Today, penicillin is used as an antibiotic to treat many different infections, such as tonsillitis, meningitis, and pneumonia. Who could have guessed that an experiment gone wrong could have led to a discovery that would save so many lives in history? Here in the Royal College of Physicians, Harriet Wheelock has a few things to show us. What we have in front of us here is a 19th century surgeon's kit. Um, this would have been a standard operating kit for a surgeon at the time. 
So we have a very large saw, which was for cutting bones. Uh, this is a bone chisel, so again, it's for, yeah, it makes you wince. <laughs> um, there's a range of knives for um, taking off the skin and cutting through muscle. Um, this is a tourniquet, so it's for um, if they were going to amputate a limb, you would tie the tourniquet around the limb, pull it really tight to prevent the blood flowing, and then cut off the limb. Um, this is a trafan, which is for driving a hole through the skull. So if you had a head injury and there was a build-up, they thought there was a build-up of pressure inside the skull, they thought if they drilled a hole into it, it would relieve the pressure. Um, surgery at this stage was very um, brutal, I guess. There wasn't anaesthetics, so the patients would have been awake. Normally they were given alcohol to try and sort of numb the pain. And they, the surgeons had to operate very, very quickly before shock set in and killed the patients. And also if they were taking off a limb, they needed to do it in a few seconds because otherwise the blood loss would be so great the patient would die. So um, survival rates were not very high. This dates from the beginning of the 19th century, so 1820s, 1830s. It was an army surgeon's kit, so it would have been used by an army surgeon probably in perhaps in the Napoleonic Wars or, or other wars in Europe. The kit dates from about 200 years ago. This would have been used. You can see there's some dents on some of the items. <laughs> Did you know that during medieval times, a common cure for a burn or scald was to rub a live snail on it? Today, we know that snail slime does in fact contain many healing properties. So this cure probably worked. Weird but true. These two are two early stethoscopes. So stethoscopes, you've probably all been to see your doctor and they have the stethoscope around their neck and it goes in the ears and they can listen to your heart. The stethoscope was invented in 1816 by a French doctor. Um, he had a problem, well, the story is that he had quite a large lady patient and it was difficult to hear her heart um, by putting his ear against her chest. So he rolled up a piece of cardboard into a tube and used it to listen through and realised this made the sound better. So he then made a wooden version, which is this. So it is basically just a wooden tube with a hole at each end and you put one end against the patient and the doctor put their ear against the other end and it just amplifies the sound. Later, the design was changed slightly, so it moves to look like this one which is a much thinner tube in the middle with much bigger sort of trumpet shapes at each end, again, to pull the sound in from the chest of the patient and then into the ear of the doctor. So this one dates from about the 1830s. And then in the 1860s, an Irish doctor invented a stethoscope that could go into both ears, made with rubber tubes, very like the one that is used today. And the same design pretty much has been used ever since. <laughs> There are many people in history who have made important contributions to modern medicine, but one woman stands out. This is the story of Marie Curie. Marie Curie was named Maria Sklodowska when she was born in Warsaw, Poland. At this time, Poland was under the control of Russia and life was difficult for many people. Her father was a science teacher but he lost his job because he strongly believed that Poland should rule itself. The family struggled to get by. Sadly, Maria's eldest sister died of typhus, 
and her mother died of tuberculosis before Maria had finished school. In Poland at this time, women were unable to attend university, but Maria was an excellent student and knew that she wanted to be a scientist. When her older sister moved to Paris, Maria had the chance to join her. In 1891, she was able to realize her dream and attend a very famous university called the Sorbonne. When Maria moved to Paris, she changed her name to the French spelling, Marie, and she studied physics and mathematics. She enjoyed every moment of learning, and soon she met another scientist called Pierre Curie. They fell in love and got married. Marie was fascinated by rays that had been recently discovered by two other scientists, Henri Becquerel and Wilhelm Röntgen. Her husband Pierre began to work alongside her, examining a mineral called pitchblende, which contained uranium and other radioactive elements. They discovered two new elements, polonium and radium. Polonium was named after Marie's home country of Poland, and radium was named after the rays of energy within it. In 1903, Marie and Pierre were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for their discoveries. Marie was the first woman to ever receive the prize. Sadly, tragedy struck, and Pierre was killed in a road accident in 1906, leaving Marie a widow with two children, Irene and Eve. Marie was devastated, but she continued to work hard and when the First World War happened, she had a chance to use her discoveries to help wounded soldiers. She and her daughter Irene, who was also a scientist, came up with the idea of using portable X-ray machines to check if soldiers had broken limbs, and she trained other people to use the machines. In 1911, Marie was awarded a second Nobel Prize, this time in chemistry for her work on measuring radioactivity. Marie was the first person to ever receive two Nobel Prizes. She realized that radium could be used to treat cancer, but she didn't understand how dangerous it was. As a result, she herself became very sick. Over the years, her experiments and her work with X-rays meant that she had handled a lot of radioactive substances and they had gradually made her very ill. Marie Curie died in 1934. She is known today as one of the most important scientists of all time. She is buried next to her husband in the Pantheon in Paris, a place where the most important people are buried. Home sweet home, and the airport is just as busy as ever. And like I said, you can fly to almost anywhere or any time. So, where do you want to go next?
This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.